0: Hello everyone, we are back. It's the Four team. You know, you get it, Tony, Olofur, Four. We decided to mix it up a little bit today. We don't have white shirts on.
1: We are not the Bible salesman anymore. That's uh, that's not great. What,
0: was that what we were saying? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Mormons or, yeah. Mormons, yeah. yeah
1: something
0: like that. Jehovah's Witness or something. Hey, it's all good. We love all the religions. So what are we going to talk about today? Today is going to be about outbound yeah before we go into that obviously kind of Tony and Olafur the two of us you know maybe unknown by now we again have Bart behind the scenes he's gonna taking managing questions um, as per usual if there's something that's super topical to what Olafur and I are talking about and it's coming in Bart will kind of give us a little bit of a hint and jump in and kind of throw the question in um, other questions that, you know, you might not be able to place so easily, you know, we'll, we'll take them then, you know, in the Q and A area. And again, we are set up for, you know, roughly, uh, I think we're scoping this to be like a 50 minute, uh, kind of session. I think we have, I mean, by now we were in the beginning we were worried like, Oh, Olaf and Tony, are we going to have enough to talk about without a pound? Um, and, uh, yes, so we could do just two hours, just rambling by ourselves. Um, it's approximately 10 hours if you and I have a conversation about it. So, you know, breaking it down into uh, a 30-minute session and then, you know, Q&A potentially uh, wasn't really big of an issue. Um, so why are we uh, so overconfident that we can talk a lot about uh, outbound and outbound opportunities and so forth? Well, uh, Bart did a little bit of research apparently. As, uh, you know, sometimes I call it magic math uh, and he roughly... Uh, you know, decided that apparently Olafur and I uh, uh, together oversaw over forty thousand outbound opportunities being created. That makes me feel old. Yes, we're yeah. very competent. I yes, don't know. yes. <laughs> um, so 40,000 40, outbound opportunities. When I heard the number, I was calling BS on it. Then the team was walking me through. I was like, Nah, you know, it's actually it's not that far off, actually. Um, so uh, obviously, you know, and this is, um, you know, in my case, uh, obviously kind of we share time at Falcon slash Brandwatch, uh, very much a, a mid-market shop. Uh, so we had 10 to 15K, uh, sorry, 10 to 25K tickets usually, uh, ACVs. Um, and then I did, you know, some outbound stuff as well on plan A, which was uh, more of an SMB shop. You went to Templify and you did outbound for like what, what range usually?
1: Uh, mm. Uh let's just say thirty to sixty K was sort of the the norm. Yeah. Obviously with much higher tickets, but that was sort of the bread
0: yeah. and butter. And I think so, uh I mean, usually right when you kind of cut it up, um everything below what would you say, like uh five or ten is maybe SMB. Uh, everything between uh ten and fifty is mid market, everything fifty and yeah. above is like enterprise, right? So yeah. kind of that's usually how we slice the world. Yeah. Um so we have kind of a right nice range kind of experience there. So if anyone has a question or wants to have um, you know, almost have something like, hey, you know, we have this issue here. Uh, how can we, uh, how can we potentially fix that? Uh, feel free to to jump in and, and just ask the question. Uh, we'll probably have, we'll probably be able to create a um, very intelligible and intelligent sounding uh, answer. Yep. Wonderful. So before we go into all of this outbound stuff, uh, we want to kind of quickly off the top cover um, Is outbound even the right motion for you or for someone? So, Olaf, how should we be thinking about it? Um, You know, whom would you recommend to do outbound? Who would you not recommend to? Um, And, you know, how do you go about this?
1: Well, I think the outbound motion is uh, to a certain degree limited to a a degree, right? There's only so many opportunities that an outbound SDR can book. And that really means that your ACV or your average contract value uh, will to some degree dictate sort of how many opportunities you can ultimately create. There is a limit to it. And well, I've done some math on kind of the cost of it as, as well, and there is sort of a breaking point for me where it's, I typically say that if you're at six to eight, you're probably below where it's uh, you know, profitable, if you will, to, to do outbound. Mm. But really at the 10K ACB mark, that's where it's sort of everything above that. I think it's applicable for, for yeah.
0: outbound. And I think just to kind of also put this into perspective, um, if you are in New York City, if you're in in the Bay Area, uh, and you're paying SDRs like 100000 dollars uh, a year, ten uh, k is also not your number. Uh, I think you will be looking at twenty k and up and so forth. Uh, for folks kind of darling and from Europe, obviously that that number can be vastly different, right? It's really uh, awesome, very much dependent on the labor cost, so to speak. So how much do you need to pay an SDR, um, and then? What can you expect coming out of that role, Um, you know, converting to how much money for this to kind of check out in the end, right?
1: And obviously, if you have an awesome land and expand motion and a really high NRR, you can kind of Mm fudge those numbers because this is sort of the land amount. Um, So there's obviously some caveats here, but uh, generally, this is sort of rules of thumbs of how at least I've sort of. Yes. Been guiding people towards if they should be setting up our bond.
0: So, since we had rules of thumb, all of us, so what is like a good target for an SDR?
1: Yeah. And I think this is again where it's a function of the ACV, as so many things are that we talk about. Uh, typically, if you're looking at, let's just take the, you know, let's just say six to 12K, let's just take that range, you would t- typically want to expect sort of 16 to 18 opportunities yep. out of each SDR. If you're in the, you know, 20 to 30 plus K, then you would be kind of looking at 12, uh, maybe 14, plus, minus one, two. And if you're at enterprise, uh, then you are looking at potentially all the way down to eight or even six. I mean, it's uh, because with higher HVs, it just means that, you know, with the right conversion rates, you just don't need as many to kind of justify the cost, but also... The ACV is also dictate what kind of companies you're going to be reaching out to. If you're reaching out to enterprise, you simply will not be able to book 18 enterprise meetings, you know, a month. It just isn't physically possible. Mm. But you could reach out to 18 small, you know, bars in England and try to convince them to buy. Planting, no, it, no, exactly, and it has
0: really to do also with the physics of how the account is structured on the on the other side, right? Kind of if it's easy for you to find the, I mean, quite literally the number of the bar owner. Uh, and call them up um, and have a conversation, and then flip that into a meeting. Then that's you know you can do you can do a couple of those. Yeah. If you're talking uh, IKEA and you need to first figure out who is actually the decision maker for this kind of problem, who's the who's the problem owner, and you need to do a bunch of calls and research, and you know try a couple of different ways in. You, you simply just won't be able to uh, to do all of that work and then kind of get to 16, 17 meetings.
1: And in some cases, you also need to reach out to several people to get two or three buyers on that first call because it's a shared responsibility in yeah. a big organization. So there's just more, more work behind it.
0: Uh, and to be honest, I mean, there's always outliers. So if you have a fantastic business model where you know exactly whom to call and the numbers for some reason is readily available and uh, you have a perfect pitch for them, It could be completely different, but those are roughly the benchmarks. Kind of, it's funny how the physics then sometimes fall. Those are roughly the benchmarks um, that we're seeing on the target side, and we are always talking about an opportunity, right? Sometimes people uh, go between a meeting booked versus a meeting held. You know, we can have a debate on that, Uh, but usually, kind of one of those two would be the thing where the meeting held is uh, has a drop off between ten and twenty percent, usually from the uh, meeting booking, right? Yeah. In terms of ramp, what should you expect from an SDR?
1: Well, um, I think there's many different sort of ways of looking at that, but typically I'll set a two to three month ramp. Yep. Uh, depends on how uh, established the function is. So if it's a really well-known uh, way of outreach and we've set up all the systems and it's a very kind of designed process, then I would say it's a two month uh, ramp up. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's probably three months. Yep. No more than that. We'll get into some activity stats and so forth later on, so I don't want to preempt this now.
0: Um, you know, other benchmarks um, or kind of targets could be like, hey, you know, how much revenue should they be generating? I think that um, I don't have a benchmark for that, actually. I mean, again, right, that, that could be calculated out in your case if you have 10 or 12 qualified opportunities and they convert for, ten, you know, 10, uh, you know what, conversion rate, you know, now that I'm there. What is like a a, a targeted conversion rate from qualified meeting to closed one on outbound?
1: I think it's going to vary wildly, at least that's been my experience, but I think you should be, you know, never dipping below 10. I -hmm. think, you know, anywhere from 11, 12 to to 20%, 20% uh, being sort of best best in breeds and 12% being totally scalable, totally operatable, but it's in the lower lower range, right? Yeah.
0: Usually when I see too high conversion rates, like the 20%, it usually points to a handover problem. I'm going to get there as well later on. Um, I wanted to finish my thoughts, um, you know, conversion rates and so forth, and that then will give you a pipeline target or a uh, ARR target. Um, and then generally speaking, I would say, you know, there is no clear benchmark on sales cycle for outbound, but I expect it to be between 50% and 100% longer than your inbound cycle. You know, kind of think about it like that. Uh, you know, whatever time you need, there's an additional piece where you need to just, you know, get them going and convince them. Uh, this is stuff same that the inbounds for, have done already. And
1: same thing for conversion rate, by the way. So you yeah. should be expecting, you know, probably around a 10% better conversion on inbound than outbound. Mm-hmm. So if outbound is 15%, then inbound, you know, you might expect that to be in the 25% yeah. uh, range.
0: What are we gonna um, talk about here today in specific, right? it's we're not going to go into the tactical operational stuff like call, you know, what call scripts to choose or whatever tricks to pull off. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, making this an engine, making SDR as an engine. And how do you build an engine? Well, first of all, you need to kind of figure out what are the different parts to it. Um, so we're kind of going to be breaking down the SDR function here today into three to four main parts that we've chosen to be kind of most uh, most interesting potentially today. There might be additional parts to it. Um, and kind of going through, you know, how to structure them. Moving on to the first thing. Um, so now that you, uh, you know, you have SDRs in place now, um, uh, and when you think about their process, their um, their their workflow, right? It starts with two big topics, which is sourcing of the accounts, um, and then uh, systemizing the outreach around it. Let's start with sourcing the accounts, right? Um, what are like, um, uh, first of all, what would be a framework you would be thinking about uh, when saying, hey, you know, random company comes like, hey, Olafur, how should we do the uh, account sourcing? How, how should they be thinking and going about it?
1: Yeah. And I think just to clarify what we mean by engine, mm-hmm. I think we're looking at this from the sort of revenue operations perspective. So how much of the current processes and what these people need to do can we automate, systemize, make into something that is super scalable? And when we talk about sourcing, um, we're really splitting out the role into the three different sort of main domain, which is the sourcing of the accounts. How do you reach out to the different customers and get them interested in a demo? And how do you do a handover to the account executive? And I believe when you're hiring a human being to do something like this, they are a you know huge value driver, I think, in the middle. Basically reaching out, uh, customizing messaging, understanding the buyer persona, and being able to write back and forth and or call. So basically that's, I think, where they're adding the most value. Having said that, that basically means that the sourcing part, where we typically see sort of three, I think I see three main mm-hmm. ways of doing it, which is that they make it part of the STR's job function. So STR, you need to go out and find new accounts. You go on, you know, Wikipedia or you go and you Google stuff and you find LinkedIn new Sales companies, that, Zoom, I mean, that, whatever it is, yes. right? But that's basically where that's part of their job, uh, job function. Um, and then the other one is that they have sort of a, there's a, you know, a, team that basically generates these leads and they might be sitting in a different country but there is basically a student worker or somebody else who is basically creating all the accounts and then the str is doing you know their work and then there's sort of lead lists where somebody just downloads a bunch of companies uploads this into the database and then the str sort of work of those yep and i truly believe that you should be using the power of data for this which is basically to buy access to uh platforms that offer this as a service so mm-hmm instead of having someone, you know, going out and finding different accounts, making sure that they don't have that account already, there's a lot of duplication uh, kind of work that needs to go into it and a thought and and estimation of what are the right accounts, what you should really be doing is uh, very clearly defining what is the ICP for our business and for the product that we're building. Meaning you should be saying, we're looking at companies in, you know, X industries, you're looking at companies of X sizes. And once you've built out that broad ICP now your job is basically to say how do we get all the companies in the world that mm-hmm. fit that could, that could potentially in the future buy our product and let's not be too selective about which one we want to add now versus later let's just get a massive database up and running and that can be done with buying you know, different you know, database tools such as Lusha or Zoom Info and Cognizum, Cognizum. there's a ton of them out there Clearbit yeah and then what I typically do is that I would basically go out and procure such a tool and then basically create that account list in the CRM so that the effort of finding companies, which companies should you be reaching out to, that is sort of a solved problem. Yeah. So um, now
0: you have all of these you know, accounts in there. Um, it might be tens of thousands, for example. Yeah. Uh, what do you do next?
1: Yeah, I think to your point, usually it ends up being 80 to 100 plus thousand accounts. That's usually what, well, what I've built in my past. and. Then you kind of get into the problem of, well, how do I guide the SDR sets to which account they should be reaching out to first? Because uh, not all of those companies in the ICP will have the same fit to your product just because they're in the range. There is sort of a core ICP and then you can can see how it gets diluted the further you define it, right? And that's where I have always tried to do some kind of account scoring. Um, What is account scoring? It's basically trying to look at the data that you have in your current sales Understanding what are the uh, what are the type of accounts that convert the best? What are the type of accounts that have the highest ACVs? Where are we get getting the best booking rates, if you will? And then you can so for example uh, that could be um, hey we've seen
0: in our customer data that uh, autumn automotive maybe kind of is not the right thing, but you know mid market in this region you know this size and these five is, industries is, is is going splendidly. Uh, so they would get the highest uh, ranking, so to speak, right? I think yeah. you can use you know all kinds of smart stuff in order to figure this out. But essentially, you're uh, taking those ninety thousand accounts, and you want to have a way to click sort and have you know the one that should be called first at the at the top, and the one that should maybe never get called in the bottom, right?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a low hanging fruit thing. Yeah, it's just a why go for the thing that's difficult. We're not churning through these you know in a random order. We're actually trying to structure it and. Mm-hmm. And I often get asked sort of how to build a great model for this. And is there even software that does it? And yes, you can do both of those. But I actually think the first step to doing this is really just sitting down with your said leadership and uh, the commercial leaders to try to understand what do they understand from the market are the highest performing you know, mm-hmm. sectors, sizes, and so forth. And then you can apply a very simple A, B, C, D score. Yep, Don't get too fancy about it and start there and then as you, you know, start doing outreach, you will start to see what works and then you can update those, you know, letterings and whatnot, but that's sort of a very simplified way of doing it. So theoretically,
0: you have those, let's just say 100,000 accounts. Um, You kind of focus on the A's um, and, um, you know, you might come into issues either because, uh, you know, the German market might be small and you kind of go through the A's real quick. you, you might then kind of get to an issue of like almost exhausting some of that stuff, right? You can either decide to go to the bees, uh, but you could also do something else, right?
1: No, and I think, yeah, that's uh, there's the one thing of like, how do I get the accounts? How do I kind of rank them in the order of which we should contact them? But then there's also the whole idea about that as you're adding these accounts, you're basically already settling there that every account of the system is just a business we haven't closed yet. But we're building a long-term relationship or a strategized sort of outreach strategy where we'll be reaching out to them at certain intervals, which could be every six months, every 12 months, or whenever they indicate that they might be ready to look at a tool like this based on a call or an email that we had yeah. with that client. So you need to create a system around it where you can put things away from the account list where you, you, know, you called them last week, somebody else shouldn't be attacking that A and calling again. So you almost need to create a systemized approach to say, how do we take those out of the circulation? And that could be called, you know, a freezer box or an account pool or whatever, basically where you take them out of circulation for the time being, because those A's will basically be the top priority to call again in six or 12 months, yep. depending on how many times a year you want to have an active outreach with the company that you're engaged in. So
0: the reason why I kind of ask like this kind of, I hear there's a lot of like, Hey, we have these accounts, we called them all. We didn't, we didn't sell much. And now what? And it's like, well, call them again, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. You recycle through them, you know, in 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 a proper manner. Obviously, I mean, we had rules like every three months and so forth. I mean, there was some some annoyance that was coming through on the other side, but uh, quite frankly, um, closed lost accounts with closed lost ops. So previous kind of meetings booked and stuff. Uh, massive source of new revenue, kind of. If if you yeah. if you filter your uh, newly booked stuff. You uh, uh so in AI you would probably see that thirty percent of this had a previous meeting on it and kind of you should always you should always kind of go for these things again and again
1: yeah and I think this is one of the biggest mistakes I see companies doing is that they will use sort of this lead object in whatever CRM they're using and they will dump all sorts of account and they will look at the outreach as a one time effort mm-hmm. which then basically means you need to upload a new list next month and next year and it might be the same companies but you're no longer tracking and understanding kind of what the engagement strategy for that specific company that you are reaching out to is. And you're discarding it sort of after, after you've tried it, right?
0: Yeah. So, um, next up, um, so, you know, you have now the accounts, STOs are sitting there, they have the headsets on, you know, they're ready to go. Um, the way they're starting to going to do this right um it's not it's not a phone on the desk that they're kind of touching and dialing right kind of and maybe this is really stupid, but obviously you should be using kind of an outreach uh, you know, I think the sales engagement uh, software so outreach sales loft kind of those are the kind of tools in order to help you run the automation around it right i mean that's that that should be a baseline expectation by now if you're running something that is more than I would say ten SDRs
1: yeah. No, and I think it kind of goes into the building structure around it. You need to have an understanding of what is the best way to engage a potential prospect, meaning is there first an introductory email where you mentioned the current clients in that industry, then there's a follow-up call. What is the best process of getting someone to agree to have a demonstration of a product? And once you've understood that through basically people doing it and learning how to do it, That's where you can also then say, well, why don't we say that we have found the way that this works best for our product and for our company, and we should standardize that across all the SDRs. Because the SDRs, for better or for worse, they're, you know, the junior people in the organization usually, so you, you wouldn't want them to be deciding, you know, how many touches they should do, and when should they give up an account, and should they call first and then email, and if that email, how should that email be? You want to basically try to automate that part of it so that they're not in charge of designing the outreach strategy, but that is being done who for should, them. Who should be designing it? I think it should be, uh, usually it is somewhat of a combination of the high, most highly successful SDRs and the manager of that team who yeah. will be setting the tone for that. Uh, it should not be marketing. That is kind of my, my thing. It should
0: not be marketing. We ran some of those experiments and you know what? The marketing emails always sucked. It never worked out.
1: Yeah. I think it's typically because they become too generic. They're used to messaging things in a general purpose way. But outreach here is all about, to a certain degree, to customize the messaging. So this is also where we're saying here, you should build a cadence. You should have automated email as part of that cadence potentially. That doesn't mean you should just fire off the same email to every single prospect. The work of that person is also to change and tweak that email based on the company that's going to be receiving it. And, you know, that's where they are adding value. They're adding value through customizing the message, through making a phone call, yeah. to making sure that they're following up in a timely manner. So you want to fa- basically focus on that. That is what they're spending, you know, 80% of their time on. Yeah.
0: I think one of my, one of my learnings is actually, and I kind of discussed this with uh, someone that has been working at Outreach actually as, a, as I think their first SDR, um, I yeah. think. Um, You know, I asked him about the ability to, uh, you know, should SDRs be customizing their own cadences, right? Not only the, uh, oh, insert customization uh, paragraph uh, area, but like in general. And he basically said, um, I mean, as an American, obviously he said something like, uh, you know, eagles must fly. You need need to let eagles fly, Tony. You know, he said something like that. So basically what he means, I think, well he he clarified afterwards but uh, you know what that you know saying means is really well you should have a standardized stuff and plates for your 80% of the pack for the people that are doing okay maybe that are not doing so well but you know that that should be the standard expectation follow this specific script the ones that are on the top you can allow them to go off script because maybe they feel better about it or they think they are you know a master at the, the art and stuff um but essentially if if that then doesn't work out for them, if they then not become you know the top twenty anymore, they basically need to go back to you know using the standard script for I think he had kind of a rule for like uh, six weeks before they could kind of start you know and and I don't think you rise need to, that, to the top.
1: You don't need to set rules for that; they will well, do it because they want to be successful, right? But at the same time, and I've seen this many times, is that the people who then are iterating on the cadences and finding something working better than what the standard is, that becomes the new standard. So. Yeah. This is some somewhat of a way to have this continuous improvement and, you know, that cadence is never holy or anything like that. No. It's just uh, this is the latest and greatest version of our understanding. But if we learn more, then uh, let's change it.
0: Okay. Moving on to performance management. It's really a euphemism for um you know, making sure you you know uh, trim out the team in the right way, right? I mean, there's <clears throat> there's a little bit kind of to that, right? When anyone says performance management, really, what they're meaning is here's a cadence how you let someone go, right? But there are a couple of other things also, obviously, around it. Um, so number one, let's just say, um, in terms of expectations around touches and activities, right? That's yeah. usually a hotly debated topic, right? Uh, quantity, quality, should you be doing this, um. Before we go into the why, let's go a little bit into, you know, the what. So um, what should be, what should be expectations, you know, for someone um, in the SDR role in terms of, you know, touches or calls or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I think now we need to just make a small stipulation here, which is that the reason to follow activities is to measure and understand effort and there is not as I have seen it ever in my professional career, a direct correlation between a X number of phone calls and emails that will directly translate into a meeting. So more is not automatically better. However, less can sometimes be worse. Yeah, I was about (laughs) to say that, yeah. So when you're designing these things and we're saying it, you know, if we're saying 100 activities uh, per day, let's just say that's the number we would recommend and that is actually the number, it doesn't mean that 200 will automatically be good. It actually means that you should basically be measuring all the SDRs for the output that they're supposed to be producing. If they are producing that, then you leave them alone because Mm. many people will get by with less touches. They have uh, fewer but higher quality touches. They have found a way that works for them to produce what they need to produce. However, on the people who are not performing, this is where you need to go in and see, well, is it a competency issue? Is it an effort issue? Or, you know, what might it be? So this is basically where performance management here is to say, if they're performing, then this n- doesn't really matter all that much. But if they're not, then it's where this becomes uh, yeah. relevant.
0: I think, and this is really kind of the the uh, the point that you're almost making. The the inputs here, the effort, is really a way for you to do root cause analysis, right? Yeah. If someone is hitting the target, um, there's no need to do a root cause analysis because apparently it's working out. Um, I mean, I've been there myself. It's like, oh, this guy hit target with only you know so many uh, activities. He can just double that, and then he would. Yeah. You know, uh, I did that spreadsheet exercise and I was really excited and, um, you know, never worked out. Um, but basically kind of we're talking 100 activities uh, that can be split into emails, cold calls, uh, socials or LinkedIn messages, some research items for creating new accounts and obviously kind of, you know, prospecting. Um, and, uh, you know, the mix somewhat can be, you know, up to the specific STR. Uh, my own personal recommendation is the the one true thing that an SDR has over any, any other tool that a company has in the arsenal is calling. Calling is the number one thing that separates them, right? An email can be sent, uh, you know, in a, I sometimes say like, well, you can, you can send more emails with fewer typos in it, uh, you know, through another way than to have an SDR do it, right? It's really the cold calling, uh, at least from my perspective, that makes a big difference here. And obviously, there are different you know uh, flavors to that. Some people might be leaning more emailing or social, uh, but cold calling should have a substantial uh, component in the 100 activities.
1: yeah, but I think this is also where you should let them do what they're good at and a lot of people will be very good at social outreach so using you know LinkedIn and other methods to kind of you know build a relationship with someone online and then you know there might be a phone call or there might not be. but you should be fairly flexible on you know, what it is you want each specific one because everyone will have different preferences, different competencies. So I'm less sort of religious about that, except for the fact that if you only do emails, then I would rather buy marketing automation software and have a machine do it rather than pay a person to sit there and do bulk emails. So, and I've seen a lot of this praying and praying where, you know, in one case, I remember there was, you know, an SDR team and, and one of the reasons I was managing, they were sending out 350 emails per day. Yeah, and they and, were
0: asking, can we please have more accounts? We're, we're, we're kind of we're yeah. checking those accounts off real quick.
1: <laughs> no, but basically your outreach is basically meaningless. Nobody responds to it. You had a conversion of those outreaches into opportunities that was basically non-existent. And this is where you're basically uh, polluting your pool. You're basically just, you know, not getting any utility out of it. So I would just say that allow them to do what they want, except they should not be exclusive to, you know, emails. That is really the one thing that I've seen backfire pretty, yep. pretty badly.
0: So moving on from, you know, ex- expectations around um, you know, activities and such, uh, let's go to PIPs, performance improvement plans. Um, many times, and maybe this is kind of the first takeaway here, or kind of the the don't, um, many times it's almost like a prelude prelude to being just let go, right? So yeah. some people kind of set this up in a way where it's like um, um, hey, we're just checking the boxes so we don't need to pay a penalty, you know, because of legal, you know, problems or hey, see everyone, we're following the process, but we have already given up on you. I think that's exactly the wrong way to go about performance improvement plans.
1: Yeah, and I think we might also have different opinions about PIPs in general. I tend to be very reserved on using that mechanism. I feel like some cases you can also let go of people without a PIP. Mm -hmm. I think that's totally, totally, totally fair. I think the one thing I would say is that PIPs should just never mirror the target that they have in their comp plan. Basically measuring output and saying, if you don't get to that output, it's like a warning in a letter instead of a sales manager saying, hey, if you don't start producing what I expect you to do and you can't plan and the way we set it up, that is a different discussion than what a PIP should be achieving. A PIP should really be measuring other factors. Basically, what are the precursors to being a successful SDR in this company? And if that is you create an X amount of accounts or you reach out to X amount of accounts and you do X amount of activities, that's a controllable aspect of their job. They Mm. cannot control how many people say yes. There's also the manager who needs to commit in the PIP to what is the training that I'm going to give you as part of this uh, improvement process of, you know, and then we will also work on the quality of those outreaches so that you can actually get to the output, which is the amount of meetings booked. Mm. But I really think that the PIP should be within the realm of, you know, improving. So controllable in that sense. Yeah. And if you just make it on, well, you've been doing five opportunities, you should be doing 10, and if you don't do 10 in the next three months, we're going to let you go. That doesn't really add anything to what they already know.
0: No, I totally agree. So, I'm, But with the exception that um, I think there should be, um, you know, there, there should be both. There should be a, um, hey, you need to get at least 80% of, you know, the, the general target, right, uh, because you have been behind a couple of times now, right, usually you don't get a pip first time you miss, you kind of get it after a while. Um, there should be one expectation around target achievement, and then there should be an expectation of what is the input of the manager. So what is the help that's being given? Yeah. Right. Otherwise, it's it's just unfair, basically. Yeah. Um. And that ideally should come with instructions with, uh, this is the input that you as an ESDR need to develop, uh, or deliver in order to ideally get to that outcome. Right. Yeah. Um. And if this t- fails, if this doesn't work out, then you need to let that pe- uh, person go. I think what's really important is to, um. You know, once you have the culture built up, though, once it's kind of an expected thing that, oh, oh, I know exactly the rules. I was below twice now. I will have the conversation, and then you know we need to work and get back up. Um, I think then it's less so of a you know tap on the shoulder equivalent, right? It's really like, hey, you know, you know the rules. This is how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, which then also creates this, um, no one is being let go out of you know thin thin air suddenly, mm-hmm. right? Hey, you know, we don't like you anymore. Out. Um but at the same time it also creates this well if someone is missing pip they kind of have to go right you can't then at the end be like ah you know what actually you know let's yeah. bend the rules a little bit because then this whole thing loses its power right so you really need to be super careful where you where you place them um because uh you need to be okay with the uh they will not get out of this anymore right and i've i've seen this a couple of times with ae's actually so AEs didn't have target, the whole team didn't have target, basically. Um, and then management was like, well. let's give everyone a pip. Uh, the thing is, you know, they will not get to 75 or 80%. Is, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. And you need to be prepared to let the whole AE team go. And, and no one is prepared to do that anyway, right? I so know. it's kind of, it's, it's really important that, you know, if you put this forward, that you stick the landing on this, because otherwise it's, um, uh, it's just going to be paperwork that, uh, that, you know, has no meaning.
1: No, no, and I think this is also, you know, there's always going to be a. But he has this big deal that's going to close, uh, you know, this quarter or next quarter. So let's just wait a little bit. But you kind of need to set these things in place and be able to kind of execute on them. And the that's reason, especially for the, PIP, the AE side, right on the SDR yeah, yeah. yeah. side, is a bit easier. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the pip is to help the person that is in trouble, and I think it's also to make everyone who's not on a pip very comfortable that nobody's going to fire them until yes. they've gone through a process. It's yeah. It's a, you know, quality of life issue for you know the whole organization. And you need to be very judicial what needs to happen before you assign a pip because yeah. And I've seen companies that sign pips to 50% of their of their staff and then, you know, half of them are gone in you know three months. And, you know, do you want to rebuild that? And will the new people, you know, do you not have a systematic problem? You know, that's kind of you need to be very careful with it. So generally
0: speaking, I think just kind of maybe make this clear. So Mrs. Wands. Uh should have a conversation obviously in the one-on-one about, hey, you missed. Uh, missed the second time, uh, they uh, get on the plan. Missed the third time, uh, there might be then uh, the consequences. You can play around with how much you escalate that. Um, I actually or we actually had a rule where, um, if so we had like a target was 12. If you are below, I don't know, 8 for like twice, then you get a pip. Um, but we also had one that, you know, if you're below five or something like that, if you're, like, drastically undershooting, uh, then you can, you know, it can even be in the first month and that you get the pip, right, kind of to accelerate this thing. Um, and that actually worked really well. Um, you know, we kind of, that helped us to move the uh, complete underperformers at least into the five to six range, right, because they really wanted to avoid that, obviously. Um, and then the middle ones kind of moved them out of the, um, you know uh, eight eight opportunity range yeah okay, um so this is actually one of my favorite ones here. so the last piece is now okay, opportunity is booked, everything is great. hand over to a e yeah um, this is where I see a lot of shit happening, honestly, um, and let's talk a little bit about this so um what uh, what's your general way of thinking about hand over to to an account executive now from an STR perspective?
1: Yeah, and I think actually going back to the performance, I think what I see a lot is when we have, you know, whole teams of SDRs that are unperforming. it is sometimes due to that the handover to the AE has not been clarified or set up correctly. Meaning that the criteria of what does a meeting mean here, uh, it is someone who has a problem. It is someone who's willing to share a problem because they understand that our uh, platform might be able to solve that problem. But in some cases, they might also have overextended the qualification criteria yep. that the SDR is actually meant to be performing. And I see the biggest culprit of that being assess if they have budgets, do they want to pay for the software? And if they want to pay, when would they like to pay? So basically establishing a timeline. The problem with that is simply that the SDR has identified a problem with a buyer. He's related to a problem that they they might have. And he says, we actually might have a solution to that problem. But customer hasn't yet seen the, the product. He doesn't know what the solution is. So how can he commit to what he would pay for such a thing or when he would like to pay for it? And I think this is where I see sometimes the overqualification leading to a really bad booking rate is because they are being asked to qualify things that yeah. are impossible to qualify at that yes. part of the process. And Usually, then, yeah.
0: sorry, where that comes from is um, AEs whining about outbound, um, wanting to have better outbound meetings, saying like they don't have money, they you know they will never buy this. Um, if the, you know, the they don't have money issue, if that's the thing, uh, that should actually be attributed to, well, then that account shouldn't have been called in the first place, right? So the, you know, the way you select the account is actually, could this company in general afford, you know, our software? If that is a no, then the account shouldn't be there. Usually it's a yes though, right? Um, yeah. And then number two, when you're in an outbound conversation, you simply have not earned the right to ask Okay, do you actually have money, um, right? And uh, okay, now that I know that I have money for this, uh, by when will you sign? What sometimes the ways you can assess money is you ask for you know competitive solutions. What are you using right now? And if they're using some kind of a free tool, you get you get the gist of you know what the budget is. If they're using an upscale, uh, you know, or even a, a number of different solutions, you also have an understanding, right? So, uh, you know, just finishing a point here we use very simply banned and there are probably lots of LinkedIn pundits that are like, oh my God, don't use banned. Uh, but really authority, so someone that um, you know has a relationship to the problem, doesn't need to be the owner, could be a champion or whatever, Yep. and then have identified the need. Do they have this problem, yes or no, that we solve? Uh, those two things need to be found and surfaced and then lobbed over to the AE.
1: Yeah, and I think because the budget might not be there for reasons of, hey, we have Uh, spent all the cash for this cycle uh, on software already. It could be that the AE simply didn't resonate enough with the problem and create enough urgency with that buyer that this problem is worth solving and that this solution actually does a lot for them, that they would be hugely valuable. So they haven't, you know, created the urgency and the need enough where they are willing to spend that money. So this is what the job of the AE is really to do. And you shouldn't outsource that to an SDR because you just want to get, you know, deals that you can just progress straight to negotiations. Your job as a salesperson is yeah. to take them from a understanding of a problem statement and where they are, and providing them with a solution and trying to create enough value that they are willing to pay for that solution.
0: Yeah, and usually I see this in in, in organizations that uh, have been inbound and then are switching to outbound, and the inbound reps they're usually inbound reps, and there's, um, you know that might also be the problem, right? They're kind of order takers versus salespeople, right? There's a yeah. difference. Um. And um, they expect opportunities to be like, oh, yes, I want to buy this software now. Please tell me a little bit more about how I can buy this software. And yes, of course, I have budget, right? This is what they expect. Um, but in an outbound uh, opportunity, you simply cannot have the same expectation to that, right? So the, that the person isn't educated, isn't ready, you know, maybe hasn't even checked out your pricing page, um, and you then still need to carry them through the sales process.
1: Yeah, And I think at the end of the day, as we referred to in the beginning, if if inbounds have a 10% higher conversion rate, that also means that outbound has a 10% worse conversion rate, and the AE should be understanding of that. You are dragging them into a buying process, an outbound, versus them going out proactively looking for a solution with inbound. It's a completely different nature. You're catching them at an inopportune time, possibly, versus them being completely ready and maybe doing even research into alternative solutions, and that will have an impact on the conversion rate and the velocity and everything else.
0: Nice. Let's go to quick do's and don'ts. So my tops are don't have SDRs report to AEs. I see this is a lot. It's really silly. Yes, build pods, build teams, do all of that stuff if you think this is right. Might be right, by the way. But do not have a reporting relationship with the SDRs boss as the account executive. That's totally stupid. Um, yeah, I think we mentioned already don't fire people out of the blue. You know, that's that's what's driving a lot of people crazy, I think. Um
1: No, I was just going to say that the A thing, it's not even just a reporting line. It can often be an implicit uh, line of reporting, which Mm. is that the organization champions the people getting the signature more than they champion the people uh, creating the opportunities. And I think you need to avoid this hierarchy of importance as much as you can, where the A, even if they're not directly, you know, having them report into them, they are kind of, you know, telling them what to do and they have some kind of superiority to them and and this is just completely wrong in my book. Yeah, These are very important functions on their own. That's why they're split up like that. Obviously, the line on the signature is, you know, paid more. That's why these people get paid more. And, you know, the, the expectations of what they do is more, but it doesn't mean that you create this implicit hierarchy. Yeah.
0: And then the last big boo-boo I see a lot is, um, you know, distribute inbounds to SDRs next to uh, expecting them to do outbound. Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, it's totally different processes, both of these things. Um, But also it creates a little bit of a, uh, let's hope for an inbound to happen, right? Kind of, yeah. let's let's rather, instead of picking out the phone, let's wait for the inbound to happen. And number two, you now need to create targets that include inbounds. And if they then don't hit those targets, um, they can literally blame marketing. It's like, well, marketing failed to kind of deliver the inbounds half, so I can't go on this PIP manager, sorry. Yeah.
1: No, and I think if you look at it, that you might have on average 15 touches needed to book an opportunity, while on inbound, you might have one or two. It's very easy to understand why the human brain would go to the easy pickings here. Um, But I think actually one of the reasons why this is also very problematic, and this is something I see a lot, which is that there is some kind of merit, not meritocracy, but actually fairness principle being applied to it, which is that we will take all the inbounds that come in and round robin them across all the SDRs, because that's the only fair thing to do, well, you fundamentally need to understand what is the cost of every single inbound you're creating. And this will often be in the thousands of dollars. And when you then round robin, it means that they are doing whatever activity they're doing. They're in whatever meeting they're supposed to be in. And they might then see that that you know, inbound that got distributed to them, they might see it you know, four hours after it came in and then they'll call them and this buyer has now moved off the website. They've done their competitive research and the three companies that called them, they're going to do demos with and they're already moved on with their life. This is where you should actually, if you have enough volume, you should have a dedicated function because this is so so difficult for outbound people to do is to do this contact switching. When am I doing, you know, presenting someone with, hey, many companies in your industry have this problem versus, hey, you reached out. What are the problems you're trying to solve? It's more of a discovery process than it is a reaching out and convincing something process. We could talk about this also another half an hour, I think. Um, but let's, uh,
0: um, uh, I tried to kind of manage this through the last couple of pieces a little bit faster here. Yeah? I hope no one caught on to that. Um, we actually have some questions lined up, Bart.
1: We do. I if you can hear me here. Uh, we have a couple of questions in from, uh, hopefully I'm getting the, your first name right, uh, U- Ulari. I'm actually going to bring him up uh, to chat. Wow, fantastic.
2: Ulari? Yes, can you hear me? You yeah, can, eh? hey. Nice to meet you. Nice to, you. Nice to be following uh, your conversation along, and then the last piece on the SDRs and AES. It's uh, quite interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, some kind of hier- hierarchy there, uh, but you know, looking looking at how important the function is, and uh, and it's 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 interesting that uh, the you know. As juniors, usually as junior SDRs, if they get on the call with, uh, with a VP, they don't have that kind of gravitas. And then how do you expect them to qualify so far? Right. Uh, The the prospect, they might, you know, the prospect might be wanting to talk to uh, already someone who, you know, can, they can go into the deal with at that point. But um, my question I, I put up there a while ago was actually regarding closing rate. Mm. So uh, let's say when you start counting that, is it when the meeting is held and then you said it's 12 to 20% uh, to close one? Or, or is it uh, you know, when you pass the quali- um, certain qualification criteria and then you're saying it's 12 to 20 uh, like yep. as a standard? Good yeah. question. We, are, we were
1: talking about this uh, at the original booking. So someone has expressed that they, yes, identify with the problem that SDR uh, reached really out about. And they would be interested in seeing a product, aka a demonstration, uh, if they can actually solve that problem. And if you then want to, you know, figure out what the meeting held, you know, criteria it's that the demo was performed, they saw the product, and then there's a different conversion rate, which you can typically just discount by 15%. Usually it's around 85% uh, show rate. So you can interpret those numbers, uh, but from it's from the original booking predominantly. Mm-hmm. And I think just touching on some of the things you were alluding to in your first comment, which was the, you know, where does the VP and who does the VP want to engage with? I think this is where you might also then consider if you should have the SDRs reach out to that level of a buyer persona. Basically, you know, is it appropriate for the SDR to reach out to that persona or should they be reaching out to the lower level of person in that company who would then be relating it to the VP who might then show up for the demo? And the other way to look at that would also be to say, if you really believe that to be true, then you should also create, uh, you know, that engagement with the AE already. So the AE would get maybe the top end of the spectrum of accounts that exist. Let's just call them the, you know, high enterprise with the high end decision makers. And then you would actually say, if they are the only ones that this buyer would relate to, then you should have them reach out and then have, you know, self-prospecting and so on and so forth. Uh but that's uh that's no, a I think I think
0: SCS can reach out to VPs. Uh, the same with kind of C level. It's obviously different and creates you know a different kind of learning path. But um, um, I've seen I've seen this work out a lot actually. Uh, okay. So it's, and the thing is, if you then kind of reach out to the layer below, um, you're creating another conversion step, right? You might have an easier time getting the meeting, yes, uh, but it will take a hit on your conversion rate eventually.
1: Yeah, right? but I think with and maybe this is where my enterprise experience comes in. It, it sometimes is not appropriate to have a twenty seven year old reach out to a VP in a, you know, ten thousand people company. That is where this leveling is potentially off. At least sort of I can I can see that being sort of problematic. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Thanks for the thanks for the question. Yeah.
1: Awesome.
2: Uh nice. So there is actually I believe Larry has a, a second question. Sorry. If nobody else is if nobody else go. let's go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned about uploading like ten to 100,000 accounts basically mm-hmm. in the database. Uh, um, so my question was uh, how would that work in a sense if you're maybe earlier stage and, and you're you're learning as you go about your ICP then, then wouldn't that be just kind of congesting the pipeline, the database like uh, as, as... Yeah. How, how would you go about that mm-hmm. in the space?
1: No, and I think at whatever stage you're at, I think you will always have built the product for a certain type of user persona and a cert- that works in a certain type of company. So I think when I say the 100,000, this is in a, in a company that has, you know, reach scale. Uh, they have a larger understanding. They might have multiple buyer personas with multiple different company types. If you have a very well-defined, you know, ICP for where you are now, that's where you should start out with that and then increase that database uh, as you learn more. So... I would say in that sense you would start being really specific then and actually not uploading 100,000 accounts but maybe 10,000 instead but yeah there I mean, is some of a journey sometimes I on.
0: think about it as you have this whole sam som sam tam sam som sam som sam whatever and then ICP in the middle right and then you know um and um uh you know your your account set will be a slice through some of these things actually right and you can I think you should start building it out when you start building it out. And once you then uh, really want to scale it, I think then you would flip to the, okay, we're going to now set up a database. We're going to get it from here. We're going to rank this whole thing. Again, right, think about this more as, um, uh, you know, before you get fully started with SDRs, uh, you might not need to do that, actually. You want to kind of hire maybe four SDRs to check out, hey, does this outbound thing actually work? If you're super overconfident, go for eight. Uh, never go for one or two. That's you know really difficult to kind of figure out. Um, you know, go for four. Um, give them a little bit of data, see if this thing works out. And if this thing actually works out, then start optimizing it. You know, according to a little bit of this machinery that we kind of you know pointed out, yeah. right? Kind of then really go out by those accounts, by those uh, sales engagement software pieces, and you know, put the performance improvement and the performance management structure in place. Those are all things to make this a machine. I think if you're early stage and figuring stuff out. It doesn't need to be a machine, you know, at that point, right? It's really not not built for scale in the beginning.
1: Yeah, and I think you can do some rough math because we said sort of 100 outreaches, you can decide how many outreaches you want to do per account over which period of time. And typically, I see that sort of this 200 to 250 accounts being actively worked per SDR is roughly around the zone where they can actually focus in and, and they are then, yes, replenishing that uh, either weekly or monthly. But... If you have four SDRs, you know that you'll basically need then a thousand sort of new things that can be prospect on a monthly basis. And then you can sort of, okay, if we upload 10,000 accounts, we now have 10 months of materials where we'll be very comfortable that they are not going to be lacking for for work.
0: I mean, I'm just actually thinking, so if you were to do it super structured, if you were to kind of spend that time early stage on this, um, you could actually use some of the feedback from the SDRs and AEs to uh, inform your ICP understanding, right? Kind of, you know, you could, instead of this being an A rank, what you thought maybe, uh they might you know put forward some reasons why they think it's a you know d or something and this is not an a at least um and i think this could also be uh, actually helping you figuring out not only what is my ideal customer profile but what is my ideal customer profile that i can actually reach through this channel here
1: yeah and if you're early on without ban i think it will also be hard for you to do assessments on closed one deals if you for example yeah. have a long sales cycle so One of the things that I always try to deploy is a scoring system between the account executive and the SDR. So for a meeting booked, once the meeting has been held, the account executive will score that meeting. What was the fit? Uh, How, you know, is it moving forward? But basically, how good was that meeting? It doesn't mean that they, you know, are going to close. It's basically feedback to the the SDR about, I think those are great meetings. I would like more of those. And hey, that didn't really work out because of APNC. And And you could use that as an early indicator of, you know, what are the things that are working before you kind of see it in the close rate. Uh, If you're starting up your outbound motion.
0: Nice. Thank you for the two questions. Um, Olaf, I actually have one. Should STRs do disco or demo calls?
1: So discovery calls or demo calls. Discovery calls, yes. Their job is to try to relate to the pain of the buyer and that will often be unearthed on a discovery call. Uh, Demo, No. That is not their function is to explain how the solution works, that there, there's a reason why you split it. And if you, you know, if you split it, then it is the job of the account executive to do that. So I've just been very stringent on that. That That is just how it works. Um, some companies sort of have the AEs and the STR do the discovery calls together and you know, I think that can be appropriate early states, but if you get to the understanding of what are we trying to discover, what are the pains that should be tapping into, then you want to teach the SDRs how to do that ideally.
0: I would not let them do the disco. You
1: would not let them do the disco?
0: No. It's part, of the, it's part of the actual sales process, right? This is where you kind of dig into a pain. That's where you build this out. That's not super easy to just teach and kind of do. Um and that's also usually where you start smelling where potentially the the money is, right? And kind of also smelling the the next way in. It's not like that the the AE's job is to demo, right? Which then is the next step and kind of that that process. The AE's job is to figure out, you know, what the what the problems, how to solve for it and and how how painful it is, and ideally work on making it even more painful. The demo is then just proving, oh, see, there are the two things that we discussed that are really important to you. We can actually solve them like such and such.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah. And I think we just see it definitely maybe on this sort of, I think of a disco call as something very short. You're confirming that either whatever you were talking over email about, or you were talking on LinkedIn about, or you cold call them and you you know didn't yeah, have okay. time to go through it all. Yeah, yeah. It's really just making sure that you have assessed sort of the problem uh, adequately so that when the AE gets it, he can basically go through and reconfirm the pain yeah. and obviously identify more pains because part of the Whatever sales price you have, you know medic or medpic or whatever it is, it will always include uh, discovery yeah for sure nice um, I think we're gonna uh,
0: wrap it actually. Uh, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, thank you for you know the two questions from the wonderful person that a name I forgot um, and uh, uh, see you next week we're going to be talking about uh, agile GTM execution. Three wonderful words combined. I'm very much looking forward to that one. Have a good one. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, everybody.